Cliffcentral.com. The Renegade Report. And we are back. Welcome back, uh, John Robbie Jr. Back to back to reality. Welcome back, Beyonce's biggest fan. How are you doing? Uh, supremely better. Oh, sorry. Supremely better. One can't complain. Looking forward to our guest speaking today. Yeah, so um, as always, a great guest lined up. Uh, you think it can't get better, and then it does. So uh, he's nodding in approval. Uh, it's always a good thing. Uh, yeah, we like to butter them up before we let them on, and then, then we find they're very pliable that way. Um, so our guest today is uh, Franz Krenier. He is uh, the CEO of the Institute of Race Relations, who have been called everything from a liberal left-leaning think tank to a right-wing think tank. Um, I don't think the labels bother them too much. Uh, Franz, uh, educated in South Africa, uh, went to high school here, uh, then uh, joined the police, uh, the good police. Those are the guys after 94. Um, got a bit confused because, you know, they kept telling them they were a force and then they became a service and, you know, then they, all kinds of weird stuff, which we can get into if we need to. Uh, he went to, he tells me he went to the United States and uh, actually, uh, taught people to horse ride and then uh, decided, no, that's not such a great idea. So he became a lumberjack. And today he is the world's most qualified foreign, or not foreign, uh, sort of local policy uh, lumberjack. So, um, uh, Franz, I hope that uh, is a fair <laughs> introduction. It's amazing. When I go and talk at sort of sophisticated places, how often... I find the person that's introducing me skips over, I think, what are the most important parts of the CV and goes to the sort of academic qualifications. Um, and um, it's completely wrong because it's those other experiences that uh, actually prepare you to do the kind of work that I do today, far more than anything else you're going to pick up at a university. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've spoken about, you know, degrees have value, but it's uh, – Really, uh, all the stuff around that and, and just having a degree doesn't mean anything. Well, the degrees required often to get, get the jobs in, in this field. Not with us, by the way. We, we're quite careful now. If you, if you look at some of our, um, job ads, we don't actually specify qualifications. We look for people and some of our most successful people have actually never been to university and have worked in the policy field. And, and very often I think the joke in the place is that the more years someone has spent it somewhere like, Witz or the University of Johannesburg and these days the University of Cape Town, the harder job we're going to have to bring them back to reality to a point that they can actually be a functioning policy analyst in a country like South Africa. So very often we'd actually prefer someone to have as little tertiary education as possible, mm. although later in their careers, if they move into other organizations, getting to banks and things, then these, these, these quite silly artificial hurdles are put in front of them. If you don't have that qualification, then how can you possibly... Uh, fulfill a particular role at a certain level of seniority. Mm. What's your take on why we've got this sort of quasi-socialist, communist uh, sort of vibe happening at all our universities? And it's not a new thing. I think it's um, that the the policies 
of a society or a reflection of its dominant ideas. And I think the right wing of any debate, and I, I mean right wing in, in, in the best uh, sense of the word, sort of traditional conservatism, are very, very bad in any society at defending their own turf, making a case for themselves. They tend to surrender the field to the leftist opposition. And the dominance at the leftist opposition in, in that debate, in that battle of ideas, it's a terribly important concept. The, that uh, dominance the left gets in the battle of ideas gets reflected in areas such as uh, on university campuses and the like. Again, my earlier point why we we actually get a concern we have in hiring young analysts is the number of years they might have spent on some of our university campuses and the difficulty they're going to have in coming back to the real world after that. Yeah, I mean... The the left has completely sealed off universities since the 1970s, one could argue. But, Franz, tell me more about your, your organization. So, Institute of Race Relations. Everyone seems to know the name. Many do not really know what you do. Um, please, can you give us a bit of a, a brief history and uh, explanatory note on what you do? We're a think tank. Um, we exist to influence the decisions taken by people who take definitive decisions about South Africa. That, that's our role. We try um, to get into the public mind, though. It's totally pointless to run around chasing cabinet ministers, telling them to do something differently. Public policy is a reflection of public opinion, and we try and turn public opinion in the direction of relatively right-wing conservative ideas, and again, in the best sense of, mm. of, so of the term. That's very different to somewhere like, for instance, the U.S., where you would lobby the equivalent of a cabinet minister there in terms of a Congress member or a Senate member. Um, here, doesn't really happen? You can't bar politicians? There's, there's not a, a, a very established lobbying industry in South Africa um, to, to the extent that you might see in Washington. The um, trouble here is that you can't go and find a, a backbencher type of MP and get him to change his mind because that chap is totally beholden to the party he represents, regardless of whether it's the official opposition or the African National Congress. Mm -hmm. And he's not going to change his mind. You can't even struggle even to get cabinet ministers to take decisions on their own. Policy is made within the African National Congress. Everything else is a subcommittee of the ruling party, parliament, the president's office, and whatever else. Mm. And um, you have to get into the upper levels of the decision-making center of the African National Congress to influence policy. If you wanted to be a lobbyist, very difficult to do. The other way around is, is equally difficult but far more productive. That's that you try and shift public opinion. You try and turn public attitudes. That creates pressure, and politicians tend to follow pressure, and politicians often tend to act in line with public opinion. So we'll, we'll often say to companies that might approach us and say they've got a particular problem, so there's no short-term solution. The only solution is a long-term one to invest in turning public opinion. So that, that's what we do as a think tank. We try and turn, shift public opinions in the direction of uh, private sector-driven economic growth, Free people make their own decisions. A small federal type of government would be the ideal for us. As specifics, we would um, advocate, for example, that uh, communities should be able to elect their station commanders of their police stations at local government elections. There shouldn't be a public education system, one run by government, 
There should be school vouchers instead, and every parent can receive a voucher. All schools should be privatized. They can be given to, to communities, can buy them, uh, b- big uh, private education companies mm. can buy them, churches, um, civil society groups. And you use your voucher to enroll your child at that yeah. school. It's, 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 uh, we, we sit very close to the libertarian line. The history of the, I was just about the, to say, that's the, 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 the very much the libertarian point of view. So, Sorry, the history of the organization, because uh, this sounds not just like race relations. So tell us how we, much we got to our name and, and where we started. We established in the 1920s. Um, it's really a response to union in South Africa, which has happened about a decade earlier, and specifically in the Western Cape, the mixed voters role, which has been abandoned, and various protest movements grow out of that decision. These come together in forming the South African Institute of Race Relations in 1929. From the beginning, a very unique approach. It's not going to be a typical type of activist organization runs around with banners in the streets and organized marches. It's going to do something actually far more sophisticated. It's going to produce very high-quality social and economic research and information. It's going to inject that information into the bloodstream of the society. And it's going to use that as its unique contribution to fighting racial injustice in, in the society. And, of course, for the first... Um, 60 or so years, the the issues are very much racial. And the Institute develops a very broad um, front of policy expertise. And the only reason for that is that is the broad fronts of policies that were affected by racial policies. So in terms of shifting public opinion, would you say that the Institute of Race Relations were part of shifting that public opinion, which, for example, uh, made the referendum uh, on sort of apartheid go one way or another? Oh, very certainly. It probably became the most prominent anti-apartheid think tank, which is which is unique for what's actually a conservative organization. And there, in a book that, that may be released later this year, we, we'll talk a little bit about that history. And um, what will come out is that the Institute played a very direct role in seeking to shift white public opinion to the point that white South Africa realized that there was a lot to gain from a negotiated settlement and a different dispensation for the country. Had the clerk not known that he was going to win his referendum, that yes vote, he couldn't have called it. And a lot of the Institute's work, certainly in the, in, right throughout from the 20s, but, 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 but especially in, in the 20 years, I say, leading up to the 1990s, was directed at shifting white public opinion on, on the one hand, and uh, also aimed very much at shifting um, opinion within the liberation movements away from what would certainly have been failed Afro-socialist policies towards a more conservative type of macroeconomic policy that later in this discussion, I'll tell you, I think the ANC was adopting um, in the mid-1990s, now abandoned, may go back to again. So so what's interesting is that you have a think tank that is that is – Trying to shift public opinion on on principles, not ideology, so to speak. So you don't mind picking up principles that are, say, libertarian or not libertarian, but you are interested in how they work. So you're interested in the outcome of of policy, and you will adopt policy that works for economic growth and freedom and things like that. Look, if we're we're not ideologues, um, and I, it's certainly something that I try and. Imp- press upon the organization, I think my colleagues get it, is that we've, we've got to be able to show results, real results. And results have to improve people's standard of living and the amount of freedom that 
person or individual have. And if we achieve those two things, we're being successful. We're, we're not. Um, we're, we're pragmatic. Um, if if a policy is is working fairly well, even if it doesn't extend all the way into the depths of a libertarian ideal, there's no reason to change it or fight with it or or, or, or change it simply because of of what it represents. And I I I think that all our interventions are very much geared at securing direct, short, medium, and long term results. And those results will improve people's standard of living very most of the time through affording those people far more control over their own lives. So I just want to go through a, a few of of your policies that you that you that have been written by some of your fellows and that's been published in the media. So a big a big issue has you know cropped up regarding BE. I mean, there's new regulations stating that now they'll look at individuals only, not not quotas in general. Whereas the institute has a different perspective on that. You got EED. Can you just tell us what the difference is and why race may not be such a good proxy for for poverty, so to speak? Well, simply because poverty is a better proxy for poverty than race. You don't need a proxy when you can measure poverty. We've been very critical of the racial basis of empowerment policy right from the beginning. Um, and it's won us very few friends initially, although it's winning us more now. A position entirely consistent with our work out of the 1920s, and we think it's bizarre in some respects that a society that fought so courageously against uh, race-based policies would adopt them so quickly when that society became formally liberated, which in many respects it was in 1994. The, there are two criticisms of BE and affirmative action policy generally. The one is um, that racial basis of policy in principle is the wrong approach. The second is that um, it simply doesn't work. We, we're sitting with a youth unemployment rate of 50% after 15 years of empowerment policies. We can rack up, my analysts can do it, the hundreds of billions of rands that have moved through BE deals. There's a far better approach. And we call it EED, or Economic Empowerment for the Disadvantaged. And it's got two differences to BE policy. The first, it's not doesn't look for a proxy to identify its beneficiaries. It looks at your socioeconomic circumstances. simply does a means test on them. And an excellent means test is where your parents at university. The second thing is it's an output-focused empowerment policy. The, the, the current policies have spawned an entire industry of auditors and BE practitioners, many of them white-owned, which is a great irony of our history. A colleague tells me the story about attending a seminar where the white owner of the BE firm was training black executives on how to make their, firm, their own company's <laughs> BE compliant, which uh, really is, is perhaps the most grotesque example of where current empowerment policy is leading. Ours is an input-focused policy. It rewards companies and investors and groups that provide the inputs that are necessary to create a free and, and high-growth society. And basically, you just change the BE scorecard, and you reward a company for its contribution to fixed investment, to employment, to tax payments, and to exports. Uh, those, are the, those are the basis upon which every successful economy is built, and we just reward that it's... It's frightening to think that in a country with, with that 50% youth unemployment rate, you cannot win BE points for creating jobs. You can only win those points for socially engineering your suppliers and your management team and your, and your staff. And an attempt to do that social engineering almost always 
uh, ends up in people falsifying the sort of system because that's really what's happened. Uh, well, the, the whole thing becomes a fraud. And my colleagues that do a lot of the sort of sales and, and briefings, we do a lot of scenario planning, a lot of colleagues that spend time sitting in boardrooms, say that the size of the BE certificate we see in the foyer is usually inversely proportional to the number of blacks we're likely to encounter in the boardroom. And it's, it's, it's amazing for us how, how firms that, that rack up uh, perfect or, or very uh, acceptable BE scores mm. actually demonstrate no real black decision makers within the business or the company in question. I, I, what's quite important in our anti-BE work is that I, I disagree very much with um, – a group I have a lot of respect for, and I'm a member of Afri Forum, which which tries to make the BE fight about what it does to whites. I actually think that that if there is a beneficiary of black economic empowerment policy, it is the whites. Um, yeah. It was made clear to the white psyche after 94 and BE reinforced the message that this is not a state that's going to do anything for you. If you want to make it, you've got to do it on your own. And matched with access, a better access to a global economy and very high skills base and, and perhaps that sort of deep-seated Calvinist thing, a white did extremely well. And we can actually prove it in the data that, that um, um, will come very close to the proof that if you take white living standards over in blocks of 20 years since the end of the Boer War, whites did better in the most recent 20 years than in any 20-year block, including that one into the 1960s when whites became middle class. So I don't think BE is a problem because of it, what it does to the whites. Quite the contrary. So I think, think about I think if you challenge, if you challenge it, a group, they often, if they overcome the adversity, it's, it's a, in, in great, oh they'll yes, do so in great oh strength. Yes, yes, yes. If you, if you, if you, if you um, uh, place groups under pressure, they perform. Look how courageously black South Africans fought the apartheid system. Mm. And the injustices and the corruption of that system um, uh, under pressure, the 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 the, the, uh, the the entire concept, and it's it's it's, it's, well, it's such a tragedy that socialism's got such a grip on thinking of young South Africans, that the state must somehow do it for you. I think is ultimately the reason why so many, mainly black South Africans, remain impoverished today. And you've got to break out of that psyche, and. Racial empowerment policies have such a grip on economic policy making in the country and policy making generally that if you cannot break the racial basis of policy formation, you cannot break South Africa's structural unemployment or poverty problems, which is why we invest so much time in pushing this EED alternative over BE. It's very important to have an alternative. Because if you don't have one, people can get away with saying, yes, we know, as, as you will read now in, in the media, mm. uh, more than before, yes, we know BE has flaws, but there's nothing better, so we must do it. <laughs> it's, it's almost an, an argument that's also used by the political opposition. We want to put South Africans in a position where there is an alternative. And you can say we rather chose mm. the corrupt and ineffective race-based BE policy over EED because we actually prefer it. It's very important to create that choice. But, but I do believe you, you published a survey in this regard where, where you did a, a polling of uh, a, few, a few thousand um, people to survey their, their views on meritocracy or, or race-based quotas, and you found that most people do not actually believe in BE as yeah, a system. I... We do an enormous amount of social and economic research, and I'm privy to a lot of opinion polling data that's done in the country. And the thing that uh, strikes you almost every day 
is just how far removed from reality the national debates on the country are. The race war is imminent. It is just around the corner. It's a typical one, and it just doesn't fly. Opinion polling helps us get to the truth. We ask ordinary people straightforward questions about what they want and they think, and the results completely contradict a lot of what you'll read in media headlines and certainly almost everything that appears on Twitter. Twitter's almost the opposite of what people people think in a society. What did you say before we started the show? Twitter? Just because it happens on Twitter doesn't mean it's real. Um, what the, the, the most recent survey results we've been publishing this year, and um, let's, let's start with race relations itself. We do very little work on race relations directly. In, in the end, everything we do is race relations, but the but specifically nothing. And we find in, in a recent opinion poll, coming after this very difficult sort of start to the year that started with this sort of sparrow question and all of that, that 85% of South Africans across all race groups believe that there's far more to gain from working together for a common future than going it alone, completely contradicting the, the sense that that race war is, is, is sitting is sitting just around the corner. Probably the most interesting stuff coming out of polling of this year, released this year, is that South Africans do disagree on critical points, such as should we have quotas in sport. But the disagreements are often broader within race groups than they are between race groups. So explain that a bit, because, I mean, that's quite relevant at the moment uh, in regards to, you know, we're not well, getting sports tournaments now. You know, it's that, it's that threat that's delivered by politicians, that if we don't transform, there will be – if we don't do land reform, there'll be a revolution. If we don't transform the Springbok rugby team, there'll be some sort of – it's never articulated exactly what it will be, some sort of negative consequences of allusion to violence almost. And it's nonsense. Asking the question, do you think that sports teams should be selected purely on merit or on quotas? Great majority of black South Africans say purely on merit. That's not to say that a great deal more mustn't be done for sports development, which is something that rugby's authorities and South African school system and the sports minister have failed to do, but we don't think it should be them to do it in any case because we think that the mm. entire system of schooling should be privatized. Yeah, stop expecting the state to themselves. save you from yourself. But the, 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 the point is that a, a comment made by a political leader, such as that there must be, there must be a draconian action now against rugby authorities because sport hasn't transformed. And this is, 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 is on the nerves of the majority of the country's people and I'm acting as their representative. The poll suggests that that's not the case. Uh, South Africans are far more moderate in their views of each other right across the spectrum and far more willing to work together and actually far more sensible than um, many of their political representatives. That's an inherent irony, though. I mean, as soon as people do make a statement that there is a revolution around the corner, they do it for two reasons. Number one, because they will lose power if there is a real revolution. And number two, it's just deeply, deeply patronizing to the people who vote for them. Um, they want, uh, I believe they do try create, um, you know, the dangers around the corner to bolster their own power, if we're really honest. Yeah, I, I remember in, um, around mid 2007, we'd written something in Business Day. I forget what. And, and Tabo Mbeki or, or someone in his office had, we, we used to have sparring battles with Mbeki. And it replied and, and said that we, that what we'd written was undermining the national democratic revolution. And, and we, we published a letter a day or so later in Business Day saying to Mr. Mbeki that we thought the national democratic revolution was very much alive. 
that it was likely to grow in influence over the next six months and should have unseated him by the end of the year, which it subsequently (laughs) did. So I agree completely with you. By the time we are talking about revolutions, very often it is because the fear is the revolution is being directed at me. The great revolutionary, of course, Bladen Zimande in South Africa. I mean, he's been, he's been calling for revolution since day one. And, and there were those wonderful television well, images of him. Salary. After, in, 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 in Parliament, when the students stormed the precinct, of him standing in that little barred window with his little microphone trying to talk to the students <laughs> while they threw water bottles at him and the scenario, and, 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 and the scenario that he couldn't foresee. The revolution was happening, and it was standing at his front door. And ultimately, the calls to revolutionary violence always eventually turn on the dominant political power. And I think in the case of the ANC, the realization is starting to dawn among some of its better people that all this revolutionary stuff is dangerous. Rhodes must fall, became Zuma must fall. The student protest ended up at the union buildings and ended up at parliament. Fees must fall. Uh, fees Must Fall became an anti-ANC platform eventually. And in the end, unchecked, uh, kind of calls to revolution ends up with ANC leaders figuratively being hung from the lampposts outside Latuli House, and that's where it will end for them. And and that is that takes us to another interesting discussion about South Africa today. I think that realization is starting to catch on within parts of the ANC, mm. opening up a whole lot of very interesting new options for the country. So... All right, so let's get into that because you guys have sort of forecast kind of where we might be going. So, um, sort of situational planning. Um, yeah, we do. We, we, we're scenario planners. We do a huge amount of scenario planning. Um, very different methodology to forecasting. A forecaster is telling you that as we're going to reach a specific point in future space and time, it's, he'll tell you what will happen. Mm. Scenario planners are doing a different thing. They are sketching what could plausibly happen. Forecasting approach is great, but it's fatal. And it's fatal because the architect of modern scenario planning, uh, a Frenchman called Pierre Wack, who worked for Shell and called the oil crisis in 1973. Mm. Wack said forecasting only, um, forecasting is popular because it's usually right. But it's only right because the world it's based on hasn't yet changed. When that world changes fundamentally, mm. the forecaster has nothing must go back and create another forecast. Scenario planners are sketching alternative futures, yeah. each of which methodology has got its origins in complex systems theory, and each scenario of which has to be regarded as equally plausible. Mm. And it forces people to consider alternative futures that they didn't think could happen. And when we go and see clients and talk about scenarios, some of them, and one on the ANC we'll get to now, are quite way out. And we tell them the story about the 15th of August 1985, which was the night of the Rubicon speech, when amidst the economic catastrophe, Pierre Vierbuerta tells the National Party, I will not lead white South Africa down the path mm. of abdication and suicide. Chase Manhattan's rolled over our loans, conscripts, uh, conflicts in townships. Mm. A decade later, the last leaders of the National Party have joined the ANC, and it's the last leader will eventually become the ANC's tourism minister. No forecast can get you there, but scenario planning can. All right, so where does scenario planning put us? Applying similar methods today, we run four scenarios for South Africa, and they hinge on two decisions. Does South Africa remain a free and open society, yes or no? Does South African ruling authorities, whoever they might be in the future, do they turn right to macroeconomic 
conservatism? Or do they persist truly now in the face of the evidence with the idea that the socialist developmental state can succeed? That gives us four options. We plot those two decisions on a matrix. The um, best case is South Africa remains free and open and the government turns right. We call that the wide road scenario. In this one, what has happened is the African National Congress's more pragmatic leaders start to connect the dots between low growth, the fiscal deficit, the the uh, uh, high current account deficits, the so youth the unemployment rate. pauses and the Tito and no, 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 not at all. That, I think, is one of the mistakes that's being made. People are looking at the cliche ANC leaders. Okay, so who are we looking at? We're looking at hardcore, hardline, ruthless leaders. Very often they'd be found on the left of the party. Mm-hmm. And under pressure, they turn right. The model, if it occurs, may be something along the lines of what Lee Kuan Yew pulled off in Singapore after 1958 or what uh, later inspiring the reforms of Deng Xiaoping in China, which pulled China mm. out of the catastrophe of the Maoist era and into becoming this dominant uh, capitalist force. Capitalist force, And we, we, we think there is far more anarchic, Capitalism, far more capitalism, full stop, on the go in China today than you're likely to find in Washington. Mm. And that happened, and both Li and Deng are powerful nationalist socialist leaders that turn. It's a mistake to look to the Ramaphosas and those, they, they might be useful on the way, but to turn a society, you have to be a ruthless leader. So that's the first qualification, ruthlessness. The second one is weighing up the odds of persisting with failed policies as opposed to turning. In the wide road scenario, the, we remain largely a free and open society because the ANC wins a popular mandate for change. And there's a very important piece of information we use in making that argument. It's a relationship that we've seen between opinion polls done by the presidency and the change in the real disposable income of households. South Africa's presidency does opinion polling, has been doing it for about 20 years, and asks very interesting questions. And one question is, do you have confidence in the government? And when we looked at what drives that answer, the the poll has shown a fall in confidence from 80% in the middle 2000s to below 50% today. The indicator that drives that answer the closest is change in the real disposable income of households more than anything else. If people get richer, they are likely to answer that they're more confident in government. Not the government had anything to do with them becoming richer. It's just what they answer. When they get poorer, they lose confidence and they start to latch on to scandals such as the current Gupta scandal because they're looking for a reason why they're poor. Mm. And they find it in the scandal because they can understand it, they latch onto it, and, and, and that becomes pressure for government. Therefore, if the ANC turns right economically, it will see its opinion polls pick up again, and we might become a sort of somewhat free and open society with a high-growth economy. The, the, the next to that scenario sits what we call the narrow road. Again, this ruthless ANC leadership, probably coming out of its socialist left, Realizes it has to turn. I mean, they've run out of the money to implement their policies. Realize this. At the same time, they. Um, Sorry, your mic has just dropped. You got it? I've got it back, I think. Yeah, at, at the, the same, same time, time. The idea of being a Western liberal type of society is so repulsive to them that they're likely to force that right wing reform. 
through destroying democratic institutions and becoming more of an authoritarian type of anarcho-capitalist society, much as, as, as Singapore later inspired China to become. And that narrow road scenario is the polar opposite of what people thought South Africa was in 1994. They thought it's a free and open society, and later became increasingly of the view now, especially with a, with a, with a somewhat stalling economy. It's going to become a high growth economy and it's going to become a lot less of a free and open society. Both scenarios are interesting because they presuppose or suggest that the current ANC leadership, for all the scandal and turmoil that follows it around day after day, can turn South Africa around and pull it off within a decade. And a lot of audiences look at us with wide eyes and say, no, we know you guys and you've worked with us for years and that's why we're listening to this, but it sounds a bit far-fetched. And that's why we told them the story about the move from the Rubicon speech in Piervia to Martinez von Skalkwerk a decade later. World changes really, really quickly and few people anticipate the speed and the nature of change. That's why you get the North African uprisings, largely unpredicted. That's why you're able to move from the civil rights movement in America in the 1960s to the black man in the White House within a matter of short matter of decades, something people would have found very unlikely. There are two other scenarios. Both of them hinge on the ANC not turning right economically. In the rocky road, they persist with failed socialist ideas, and as they begin to realize, which they already do, that they could lose a future election, they turn to rabid racial nationalism and the destruction of democratic institutions, and South Africa's 20-year future is written for it. The fourth scenario, and there, there are, there's no fifth one, is what we call the toll road. The ANC persists in failed policies. Uh, they fail to meet the expectations of people. And for some reason, South Africa has remained a free and open enough society for the ANC to lose a future election. It loses the election in 2024, setting South Africa up for um, a new, wildly unstable period of coalition government when between the EFF, the DA, and the ANC, a new government will have to be formed and set about meeting the expectations of increasingly, uh, fortunately, sceptical South African public who are not likely to give governments the carte blanche and the, the endorsement and the confidence that the ANC was granted in 1994. So, France, what are you saying? You are saying basically that the the ANC uh, could very well be our so-called saviour. Um, do you believe that? I mean, there are many pragmatic people within it. Unfortunately, that they don't come out publicly to say anything because the ANC is a broad church. But um, if you had to make a prediction, what would it be? Yeah. Look, that's always the first question when we finish talking. And so we've got a good answer for it. We say, firstly, don't believe what we're about to say, because forecasting methods don't work in volatile emerging markets. So the forecast we're about to give you is probably not the one that's going to materialize. I think the odds are that the ANC is going to let the opportunity to reform slip through its fingers for, for two reasons. One, there are too many hardline ideologues for whom it is just a, a bridge too far. It's, this, it's a great story of the frog and the scorpion trying to cross the river and the, and the scorpion says to the frog, will you give me a lift on your back? And the frog says, you're crazy, you'll sting me. And the scorpion says, but why? Because then I'd also drown. And, that, and the frog says, well, that makes sense. The scorpion hops on and halfway across the scorpion stings, stings the frog. Yeah. As they're both thinking, 
these frog says to the scorpion, you know, what the hell was that? And the scorpion says, I'm a scorpion, and that's what scorpions do. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's the likelihood. They're not going to meet popular expectations. I think they're going to essentially lose an election within the next decade. And I think that's going to give rise to a very peculiar series of bedfellows in a, poli- in a coalition government. That's the 75% likelihood as we sit here today. 25% likelihood is that the reformist wing of the party coming out of its hardline left, not the right, they'll win the support of the right later, is going to pull off a remarkable turnaround in South Africa. It's going to be a, a 5% growth economy with rapidly falling unemployment by the end of the decade. The mistake you make is to write off the minority scenario because it sounds too incredulous, and you miss significant opportunities uh, for, for South Africa if you do that. Um, okay. Although on, on, on current trends, um, the, the more Rocky Road scenario beckons, unfortunately. Yeah, but but here they wax warning on why current trends are so dangerous because when they break fundamentally countries move into different paradigms and there's if, just, just try and put yourself in the position of, of the ANC NEC at the moment what, what must a meeting be like you can't fill a stadium even even the Democratic Alliance is trying to fill stadiums. I mean, when did sort of liberal sort of society start filling stadiums? I mean, how far how, how have you lost uh, control of the country? The EFF packs out stadiums. You don't have the pol- your money to implement your grandiose socialist schemes of national health insurance and free education and building new universities and all sorts of other things. The 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 comrades are looting the fiscus. Don't actually have the capex projects anymore to do that in to do that with. Your opinion polls have turned against you. It's um, my great friend Darvi Ruet has a wonderful quote about Hemingway, who writes about the man who goes bankrupt. And uh, people say to him, "How did that happen?" And the man says, "Well, first slowly, and then very fast." And political parties lose control in the same way. And the ANC is now in the very fast. There are great stories about senior ANC leaders arriving to go on the campaign trail and the police say to them, you, if you go into this neighborhood, we suggest you campaign from inside the Inyala because we, we think the people will tear you to pieces if you walk in the streets. Now for the ANC, that arrogance of being the people, the view, the, the manifestation of the will of the majority of the people to be told they're effectively no-go areas. To be, to be ridiculed in Parliament day after day by the collective opposition, to face the, the headlines they're facing in Sunday papers at the moment, scandal after scandal. Um, take that to your board meeting and have a discussion about where things are headed. Maybe that conservative right-wing economic reform then starts to gain a bit of traction within the movement. And if it does gain the traction, they're not the first They'll be one of a series, mainly Asian at first. This is where the trend really starts in in the 70s and 80s. Economies that came out of similar catastrophes to become economic powerhouses by adopting sensible policies. And and for that reason, maybe my sense that that the the up case only has 25% is a little bit pessimistic. Just wondering, you know, to me it seems a lot of what's stopping the ANC from kind of having what we would view as sort of sense and, and turning away from the rocky road. Because I feel to some extent they're already on the rocky road, you know, uh, the sort of going against democratic institutions like the public protector, 
um, doing doing things like that. Uh, I'm not convinced the IEC is that IEC anymore. Um, so these kinds of things. But I'm wondering the effect that a party like the EFF ha- is having on those types of decisions because it's almost if the ANC moves to the right, as you say, um, the problem is they lose the populist left, which is what the EFF almost universally appeals to. Uh, and I feel like the whole of politics uh, across all the parties, DA, EFF, and ANC, um, the rest don't really matter, um, has moved left. Uh, the DA is gone, all right, we've got all the middle class guys. We now need to start being a bit populist. The DA, the ANC seeing the EFF members, uh, well, the, the, a lot of their members moved to the EFF um, with this populist sort of rhetoric coming from, from uh, Julius Malema. Um, I'm just wondering what effect you think that has, or if any, if you if you think I, I've got any any I think anything of that right. I think it's a patronising lack of imagination on the part of political leaders that to appeal to the poor and to appeal to the unemployed, you need to kind of dumb down your ideas. Uh, it comes out very clear out of the opinion polling that South Africans don't want more dependency, they don't want more welfare, they want jobs and the independence that comes with it. I don't think any of the political parties that are around at the moment actually have the courage to go out and appeal to what people really want. And you're not seeing parties appealing to what people want. You're seeing parties appealing to their narrow uh, prejudices about what they think poor people might be able to understand, which is um, which is will give you more welfare and will 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 give you more BE. Now you can probably find that result in opinion polls if you look for it. Um, you can say to people, do you want more welfare or more BE? And they'll say yes, and you'll say, well, in that case, what must we do as a political party? The, it's the same as asking the question in an opinion poll, do you bath every day? And someone will say no, and you'll make draw inferences from that, but the chap only has a shower in his house. So you, 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 it's, it, there's a total lack of imagination. Also, surely it is the role of, of, of leaders within any society, if you want to have a society led by leaders, which is a discussion for another day. To actually not become what, what I think has started to happen in the political opposition as well. It's, it's a party that says there go the people and as their leader we must follow them. Um, have the courage to actually put across a fundamentally different bold set of new ideas that capture the imagination of people. The ANC has afforded the opposition a unique opportunity to do this. You could not have a, a, a governing party that does more damage to itself than the ANC does. It's every single day of the week, it is, it is from scandal to crisis to catastrophe and back again. And I don't think the political opposition is exploiting this sufficiently. I think a, a fundamental different set of policies, boldly articulated by um, DA leader Mahamane, who I think is, is one of the few politicians with a measure, great measure of charisma, perhaps going back to Fonsal Slabber, who had any charisma. If, if, if anyone's able to articulate a bold new vision, you need a guy that can actually pull it off. And, and Mahamane's got the ability to do that, and I think it's such a pity that the party hasn't been bold enough in driving an alternative set of ideas around key questions such, mm. as, such as empowerment policy. If they had... I think they might have seen. Well, I, I don't think anyone knows where the DA stands on on empowerment at the moment. No, the, a few, a few, two, three years back, they said we want many black millionaires, but not well, two they, or they, three black billionaires. Right? They want a broader economic 
they've reversed a couple of times, and I, I think they they're stuck. They're stuck between sort of going with the just yes to BE and uh, sort of going well. We seen BE and the problems that are there. So, and I agree with you. It is proposing something, but you've got a party like the EFF saying. Uh, who are basically campaigning on uh, the AMC's campaigning is race, um, the EFF's campaigning is land. So, uh, and maybe that is very lazy, but it does seem to be drawing some attention there. Can we talk about land, about land reform? Uh, you know, is it such a big thing to people? Um, no. The, in fact, in, in these latest polls we did, we asked an open ended question. They, they're very useful. What would it take for your life to be better? I mean, anyone can answer it. It's, it's, it's a great leveler of a question. I think 2.2% of people mentioned land reform. And, and yet you're, you're told that if it's not for land reform, there'll be some sort of revolution. I don't think it's the case at all. Land represents now about 2.5% of GDP. Agriculture, I think, has come about 30,000 businesses, a number that we think should, over 20 years, reduce to about 5,000 to make it competitive. And the economies of scale to produce food cheaply and employs about half a million people. Take all those numbers and tell me how that's going to solve a crisis where 8.5 million people do not have jobs or employment uh, of, or any, any economic activity. The maths on land reform just doesn't follow. The only debate on land reform that actually has any traction is, is not an economic debate. It's an ideological one. Mm. That, that we, we want to take it back, mm. um, which – which um, and, and, and we, who the we are, and, and take it back from whom and f across what eras are, are questions that, that are seldom brought out in sufficient detail in, in the media. But land reform on its own offers zero chance of a better life any South Africans, the only outcome you're likely to get on land reform is you worsen circumstances for great majority of people through hiking food prices and destroying these economic centerpieces, the businesses that keep rural economies together and therefore accelerating flow of people into urban areas that already, because of low growth and lack of employment opportunities, cannot meet the existing, cannot meet demands from the existing flow of people. Land reform is a lose-lose-lose outcome. Why does a party like the EFF push it, therefore? Um, there's some yeah. pretty bright guys sitting in the EFF. is isn't a group of ignoramuses. I think there are at times in evolution of countries, you come across sinister political leaders. Those who realize that they will profit immensely from chaos, conflict, and instability. And I think the EFF is one of those parties. I don't for a moment think anyone, including EFF leader Julius Malema, thinks land reform is going to improve anyone's social economic circumstances. But in destroying the property rights basis of our society, you destroy individual and human freedoms because property rights underpins human freedom and Absolutely. that's what's important it's not an economic question property rights the economic question is secondary it's the human freedom question if your property is secure and no one can take it from you there's nothing else they can do to you they can't take away your freedom of speech or thought or association but allow them to take away the basis of the of the the business or the uh, Wealth that sustains you, mm. and they can intimidate you into dropping 
all your your ideas, your associations, your political uh, views, and the like. And that's why property rights are so important. And when a party like the EFF, which is some very bright guys in it, push a pointless, a dead horse of land reform as they do, the reason is not social upliftment. It's not that they actually think it can work. It's that they understand that that's necessary to become the kind of draconian society that they envisage for South Africa. Franz, I mean, listening to this, I mean, I, I agree with you on, on, on everything you said so far. What, what boggles my mind is why no one else has been able to articulate these things like you. I mean, if you, if I don't read popular media on purpose for this very reason, all I read is, is land reform and racism and who knows what else other things. But you are telling a story that shows ordinary South African citizens are actually deeply reasonable. And 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 you won't find that anywhere else. Not reflected in. We we make a point on each podcast that individuals are reasonable. Individual wants shelter, food, relationships, uh, sex, a job. Everyone everyone has those goals by you know far and large. Why is that not being promoted in media or in government? Why can't the ANC just say? Look, we've done so well for you, actually, considering. Why doesn't the DA, you know, make the same point? All they do is, is attack the ANC, but they don't say, we've made you more free. We've made you able to get a job or to get what you want or to... Uh, anyway, I'm ranting. Why hasn't this message been portrayed? I think um, the... I mean, I've I've been doing this for about 10 years now, pushing this message. And I know all the other people that push the message. And we could all fit into your little studio here. And between us, we we receive a, a, a frighteningly modest amount of funding to do this with. It's very difficult at times to get these ideas into the media. Uh, you can get them in, but it takes a vast amount of effort to do that. My group is now placing about 150 opinion articles a year in the mainstream media, and we're starting to get there. But we're up against, uh, uh, it, it, it's really, a, a, to, to some extent, a David and Goliath struggle. The other side of the debate, the socialist left, are incredibly well-resourced. Vast numbers of lobby groups, activists, and think tanks, huge amounts of money pouring into those organizations, often out of corporate South Africa, CSI spending indirectly. Um, I think uh, organizations such as the Ford Foundations and others have been hijacked eventually. I, I know of a very interesting funding group in the U.S., which has set a um, coming out of a, a, a very rich American businessman who has instructed his heirs to spend all his lobbying money within, I think, a period of 20 years because he knows that the history is that these groups get set up by these industrialists and get hijacked by the left and turned against them eventually. He doesn't want it to last more than that, so it can't be hijacked. I think that's part of the reason. But ultimately, I, I think what it comes down to is that those with a stake in the maintenance of um, a capitalist system, comes down just to that, are seldom sufficiently motivated to fight for the system, and therefore they allow it to be attacked time and time and time again. In the end, whoever wins this debate is quite simple. It's the one that put the most information into the public system, the most convincing information. At the moment, too little 
conservative ideas is entering the public debate in the country and too much socialist dogma. The result is the policy framework that we see for South Africa. Give give the conservative right uh, the massive amount of funding uh, and it almost is, it must be frank about these things it, it would probably be possible to buy a different result in terms of public opinion I don't think we should be shy of, of that you said earlier that um, you know we think these are sensible ideas, it's not we think, these are sensible ideas because there is no example you can go back over the last hundred years of the alternative actually working mm. This is the only thing that works. It, it, it will deliver results. And, and activists for conservative ideas should not be shy about making that point. That they are right. The, the other side are wrong on the facts of it. There, there's no other way. But we don't be polite, give each other a chance and hear the other side out. Yeah, let's agree to disagree is bullshit. The, the other side played itself out in Venezuela and Zimbabwe and Cambodia and the Soviet Union. It's, it's there for, for, for the world to see. The the, the, the uh, products of conservatism built um, vast amounts of wealth that tracked very closely the reduction in poverty levels across the world, most notably in China and, and in Asia broadly over the last 20 years. And um, and those those points need to be made strongly and boldly. But as I said, the, the lobby for that in South Africa, the number of, of people involved would all fit into the studio. So... Just on the conservatism point, because I think people hear that word, um, and uh, you know they they uh, and, yeah, and they think apartheid was conservative. Yeah, uh, oh, they're going to take away my rights to an abortion because that's conservative, or um, they're going to impose religion on me because that's conservative. Um, so, uh, can we just uh, clarify a little bit that that's well, not what we're talking about? Well, apartheid was a, a socialist society. Uh, I mean, if you farmed with bananas, you had to sell them to the banana board. I mean, you don't get get closer to yeah. socialist uh, utopia than that. You, you're told what to do with your bananas. The um, That's why it failed, uh, which it did. <laughs> I when, when I started this, I, I used to struggle with the terminology as well. And, and there was a stage early on when I said, you know, we must be careful with terminology and not talk about being too liberal, too conservative, push, push people off, and actually to hell with that now. It, being nice doesn't get you anywhere. You've got to be direct and upfront about what your ideas are and call them what they are. And in time, as the, as the, the, the currency that carries the ideas of the other side of the debate falls apart, people will turn to you. And I think ultimately have the respect for the fact that you were willing throughout to say what you are, not to, not to hide behind other mm. terms and, and try and be nice and try and present a different uh, a view and, and, and try and uh, uh, slowly and almost sneakily bring, bring the left on board by being mm. careful. Be out there, be upfront, be direct about what you believe in because it's actually that upfrontness and aggression almost in pushing the message that explains the vast success of left-wing activists in selling their bankrupt ideology mm. to poor people for whom that ideology offers no possible chance of a better life. So I'm just going to also add to that that I think at the moment conservatism very much holds the view of, of freedom. It's about freedom. It's about liberty. So if, 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 you, if you think otherwise, 
you you're blatantly mistaken. So con- conservatism is 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 taken to its extreme is 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 the height of individual liberty. You control your own future. The the individual is all important. Um, short of you obstructing opportunities or threatening uh, the futures of others, you're allowed to do and think and be whatever you like. Okay. Now, not for a moment does it extend to restrictions on abortion or the like. I, I think a great tragedy, but also perhaps a rebirth of a conservatism in the United States will come about through Trump. Who, yeah. I, don't, I don't know where, where you chaps are and Mr. Trump, but... but I Love I, him. Don't always uh, agree with him, but love him. Um, I... I think there's a measure of there's no word in English that's as good as Afrikaans with Skein Heiligheit in in what uh, Trump is busy busy doing in America. Schadenfreude, I think. Um, <laughs> and um, I think it may do a fair amount of damage, but will force the rebirth of American conservatism in the model of what. Um, uh, came really out of the Reagan era, hmm. which is what I think American conservatism needs to return to. South Africa's never really had a conservative movement because the, the, the Nats were such ab- absolute socialists and the ANC who took over from them in, in many respects um, uh, pretended to be socialists, even though the gear policy was perhaps the most conservative macroeconomic policy written by a South African government. But we don't have that movement and there's a, there's a, there's a sense of being almost afraid of it, of being... Uh, of, of it being a dangerous idea, and I think far more might be gained by being upfront about it and uh, seeing if um, that allows the movement to start attracting a growing number of recruits. In my in, in my own very small way, um, being aware of who's who, I think that's starting to happen, and uh, more and more young people, by no means a flood are expressing interest in these ideas and uh, are, more importantly, prepared to stand up for those ideas. And that's quite an encouraging um, trend, I think, for our country. Yeah, well, that hour was more packed with information than most other hours of my life, that's for sure. I'll need to listen to this one two or three times to really get to the nub of the idea. But, uh, France, uh, this has been absolutely invaluable, uh, really Thank you very much for coming through. Uh, your ideas are, are fantastic, and they're informed. Who would have thought uh, well-informed ideas could actually take hold in this society of ours? Yeah, I, um, I, I agree. I think um, a bit of a mind-blown type of stuff. But uh, uh, I think let's try expand the small group of people that would only fit into this room and and if you're listening to the podcast then have these discussions uh, when you sit around dinner tables when you speak to friends um, don't be afraid to stand by your views and believing in individual freedoms and liberty is there's nothing wrong with that it's something to be proud of and i do implore our listeners to please go to the institute of race relations um all their all their research is available become a subscriber uh, you really would not be disappointed a lot of valuable information there just to close up, uh, Franz, you want to just uh, plug a little bit of the your Twitter account or the, the Institute of Race Relations, etc.? Yeah, if you're looking for us, irr.org.za, uh, that's probably the place to go. And uh, if you look for us on Twitter, you'll find us there. We're fairly active. And uh, if, you're, if you are a, anyone, particularly a younger person interested in these ideas, want to have a, find a home, um, we're very interested in talking to you. 
Lovely. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been the Renegade Report. We will catch you next time. Thank you. Revolution. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.